me just say something. This is going to be your final offer. Listen to me. There's only two cases left in play. <laughs> one case is worth $750,000, and one case is only worth $5. Mr. Nopper. Hello. Okay. Okay. Last offer. $333,000. For the last time in this game, Louis Green. Deal or no deal? That's a nail-biting decision faced by one contestant on the game show Deal or No Deal. What should he do? What did he do? Today, we're looking at how your approach to risk changes based on whether you're focused on what you stand to gain or what you stand to lose. You'll hear from contestant Luis Green on the thinking behind his agonizing choice. And to help dissect these types of decisions, I'll be speaking with Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. Danny and his friend and colleague, the late Amos Tversky, were the first to explore how gains and losses distort our judgment. They founded the field of behavioral economics, which means we couldn't have a podcast about behavioral science if it weren't for Danny. So we're thrilled to have him on today's episode. I'm Katie Milkman, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show about the psychology and economics behind the decisions people make. We bring you true stories involving high-stakes decisions, and then we explore the latest research in behavioral science to help you avoid costly mistakes and achieve your goals. So I'm in the backstage, I'm just kind of waiting, and then the adrenaline's pumping. You see all these people, they're cheering, they're yelling. This is Luis. Hey, how's it going? My name is Luis Green. I live in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was a contestant on the game show Deal or No Deal. Welcome to Deal or No Deal. If you haven't seen it or played the board game, Deal or No Deal is a show where contestants select sealed briefcases, one at a time, from a group of 26. Inside each case is a card depicting a certain amount of cash, ranging from one cent all the way to one million dollars. Contestants choose a case, but they have no idea how much money is inside. Really, it was just pure excitement, meeting Howie in person. Howie is Howie Mandel, the host of this high-energy, high-drama show. I'm Howie Mandel, and it has been a long time since I said these And it's surreal, because everything that you see and hear is exactly what somebody at home hears at the same time. So the music, the dun-dun-dun, all of it, it's live. So it really kind of makes you feel like uh, you're really in a TV set. It was, I mean, it was intense. I love doing this. Uh, when the game starts, I'm actually behind the red button, the deal or no deal box. And uh, to the left of me, you see all of the deal or no deal models just smiling, posing, and then you have the game board that shows you all the amounts. And I would say that my eyes were just kind of fixated on the million dollars. I was like, oh, you're mine. 
Deal or No Deal is a game of chance. The contestants can't see what's inside the briefcases. They only see what's remaining on the game board after a case has been opened. But there's one important twist. So you start off the game by picking a case that you feel has the million dollars. And then that's the case that's placed on the table. And then the rest of the cases are out being held by models. So what you do is you go through a round of eliminations where you eliminate a certain amount of cases and then they'll give you an offer, the banker, as they call her. That's the twist. The banker character tries to tempt the contestants to accept an offer of cash in exchange for not continuing the game. The banker's offers dangle lower amounts of cash than players could potentially win if they kept playing and got lucky. So the contestants have to grapple with the decision to go with the banker's offer, which is a sure thing, or hold out for the possibility that they'll win a larger sum. If they take the risk, they could easily end up with a tiny amount of money. It's agonizing to watch. So my plan was to to win the million dollars. We started thinking kind of like, what are we going to use it for? You know, my mom had cancer. Uh, She's actually clear now. Uh, So we're planning on using that for some of the medical bills that kind of came unexpectedly. We're planning on giving some of the money to my mother-in-law, giving our church uh, 10% of it, and uh, really just paying off some debt on our end. I mean, I'd probably go get myself a suit or something cool like that. (laughs) Um, Maybe go on a vacation. This is going to be a great holiday because one of those cases is holding $1 million. So Howie... Uh, turns around and he and says, All you have to do is pick the one case that you think has a million dollars in it. Yes, and I'm picking the case that I believe contains the million dollars. And I turned around and I said, Ten. And I was so sure of it. I was like, Ten's the one. So that's well, let's find out if it's meant to be your choosing number 10. Ten. Veda. Back in high school, my number for, for volleyball was 10, and then my football number was also 10 for my jersey. And, uh, I just felt like that wasn't going to be the right one. And, you know, you, you convince yourself that this isn't a chance thing. You know, like, the million dollars isn't 10. So the number 10 case was set aside, unopened, for later. So in the first round, there's six cases I needed to pick to eliminate. I was always trying to pick a number that was lower. So a, a case that held a small amount of money in it to be eliminated. So some of the smaller amounts in the cases would be a penny, 10 cents, five dollars, ten dollars, a hundred, a thousand, uh, ten thousand. Those are all in the smaller numbers relative to the game. So as we jump into the first round, everybody was screaming and then it gets kind of quiet as I'm starting to select uh, the cases. I just remember going case to case and I think the first couple were actually in my favor. And, you know, every time that I saw a small number, you know, just get this burst of excitement. Like, yeah, great, like it's going to go in my favor. And then uh, right in the first round, the million dollars comes off the board. And it's like everybody was really, really fighting here. Oh! But to me, it was like nothing else was there. It was like tunnel vision as I was looking at the million dollars. And I was like, man, I feel like I lost. Let's pause here for a minute. Luis came into the game with zero dollars of winnings. And there's no possibility of losing money. 
he was only ever in a position to gain. Though it's possible he might have only gained a penny. But he was so focused on the million dollars that he felt like he already had it in case number 10. When the actual million-dollar case was eliminated, Luis felt like he'd lost a million dollars. All of this despite the fact that he could only gain money from his starting position of zero. But for this story to make sense, it's important for you to understand his mindset. Anything less than a million-dollar prize felt like it would be a loss to Luis. Okay, back to the action. I just remember my heart kind of dropped and... I looked over at Tia, my wife, and uh, she just kind of looks at me like, uh, you know, like, what are we going to do? And I think she uh, had kind of the same feeling, you know, we feel like we really lost at that moment. It's kind of hard to describe how it feels due to the fact that, you know, it's not your money. You know, you feel like it's your money because you've kind of thought about what you're going to plan on doing with it in the future. So when I lost a million dollars, like everything just kind of rearranged in my brain. And then I turned around and then Howie, he's like, it's okay. You know what? You know, there's still a lot of huge cases. And then started kind of rattling off some of the cases that were smaller than a million, but still, I mean, life-changing numbers for sure. So after I opened the cases, the banker comes back and offers me $12,000. $12,000 is yours, guaranteed. You've been here. So to me, it was like such a small amount. You know, you look at the numbers that are on the board and kind of what's being offered to you. I still see that there's a lot of chance for the $750,000 or anything under that. So I had a big no deal. No deal, no deal. And I slammed the little box uh, on top of the red button and uh, continued to move into the second round. As I go through round one, two, three, the offers climb and climb and climb. And, you know, as I see the numbers, I mean, you can tell, like, I mean, they're big numbers. Numbers that I mean, I've never had in my bank. You know, like, oh, that's cool. You know, like, how can I get more? Luis is seeing briefcases with small dollar amounts being eliminated. This means that there's an increasing chance that the banker will offer him a larger amount to quit. The million dollars is gone. And then I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can replace that with a $750,000, you know. So the banker offers me $217,000 to walk away at this point, you know, guaranteed money. If you walk away, take the deal, you'll walk away with $217,000. If someone you trusted offered you $217,000, no strings attached, would you take it? Most likely, right? That's a big gain. But Luis had his mind set on a bigger number. In fact, since he'd been so fixated on a million-dollar prize, in a sense, $217,000 felt like a $783,000 loss. It was that much less than the million he'd decided he was going to walk away with. I took a risk, and I slammed the case down and said, no deal. And I ended up opening up the next case, which had a small amount in it, which worked in my favor. This was a good thing, because that meant that there were still high-value cases to come. So we're in the final round. And uh, at this point, it felt like my luck had kind of turned around. So now you fast forward all the way to two cases left. There's 50-50 odds. And there's never better odds in the game than 50-50, right? Up to this point, like, the odds are always against you, no matter what. 
So there's two cases left. There's a case that contains $5 and then a case that contains $750,000. So the banker came back with an offer of $333,000. Last offer. $333,000. When the $333,000, it was like, wow, take the deal. My mom, I turned around her. Well, she's been saying, take the deal since like early on in the game. Take the deal, honey, take the deal. And um, my brother, he's like, take the deal. Luis, that's a lot of money. Take the deal. You know, I got to turn down one more to get to the end of the game, to see kind of what's in, in 10, which in my head, $750,000 was in 10. Luis had a feeling that his initial pick, case number 10, contained the $750,000 and that the $5 case was still on the platform. Remember, in his head, Luis is not choosing between $333,000 for sure and a 50% chance of $750,000. He's thinking about everything relative to the million dollars he had his heart set on from the start. So to him, this feels like a choice between a 50% chance of losing $250,000 versus a sure loss of 667000 He's framed this whole decision around that million bucks that slipped away. So to me, you know, $333,000 just really felt so much smaller than the million dollars. I said, my counter is no deal. This is my counter. No deal! Boom, and I slammed it down. And they were like, oh my God, he's always going wild, right? At this point, Howie says... Luis Green. Luis Green, you're going home with... He grabbed my case, he unlocks it, and he said, Luis Green, today you're walking away with... And it drops... Five dollars. Five dollars. There it is there. I am so sorry, buddy. Luis Green... No one in the entire crowd said anything. Everyone was just in shock. And I just remember, you know, like I'm in shock. I'm like, I don't know how to process what's going on. And I go backstage and we're all sitting and my mom comes next to me and she's upset. And, you know, everybody is just so down, you know, like even people backstage were just so upset, you know. You know, everything just doesn't seem as bright. Like your heart's still sunk and... You're wondering, like, when's my heart going to come back up? You feel like crying, but I have a hard time processing these emotions. Uh, It doesn't change (laughs) the decision I made. Let's say you took away all of the surroundings. You took away the camera. You took away Howie Mandel. You took away the stage. And somebody came to you and said, Luis, in one hand, $750,000. Or there's $5 on the other hand. You can choose 50-50 or walk away right now with $333,000. I think in that situation, it's so much easier to just say, I'm walking away with $333,000 because there's no you haven't invested anything. But I think when all of the other pieces kind of came into play, you know, the interviews, the talking and dreaming and all this other deliberation, it really skews logic. Luis gambled and lost almost everything he'd had his heart set on. Of course, the odds were 50-50. 
He could just as easily have walked away with 750000 rather than a paltry five bucks. It wasn't crazy to take the chance, but it sure was risky. Today, Luis is circumspect about the experience. He even has a sense of humor about it all. So the $5 winnings uh, came to me in a check, non-taxed, mind you. Uh, and we placed it on, uh, on our living room. We framed it as the most expensive uh, $5 bet I ever took. Luis Green appeared on the game show Deal or No Deal in late 2018. He lives in Jacksonville, Florida. Clips from the Deal or No Deal episode are courtesy of NBC Universal. It was a crazy moment, right? Luis was offered 333000 to just walk away. But instead, he chose the 50-50 option. He knew that the case he chose would contain either $750,000 or $5. A huge risk. Now, you might be saying to yourself, if I were in Luis's shoes, I would have taken the 333000 And that may be true. But most people if they framed this decision the way that Luis did, will be a little more willing to gamble than usual in a situation like this. You see, Luis felt like he'd already lost a million dollars, even though he'd never had it in the first place. That sense that he was in the hole, and no matter what he did, he'd end up feeling like he'd lost, changes the way we consider risk. When you're thinking about gambles in terms of losses, you tend to seek riskier bets. Let's look at another example of this tendency. We presented two scenarios to several volunteers and asked them to choose between two options in each scenario. Imagine that the U.S. is preparing for an outbreak of an unusual disease, which is expected to kill 600 people. You're an epidemiologist, and you've been asked to choose between two different programs to combat the disease. The estimates about success are exact. If you choose program A, 200 people will be saved. If you choose program B, there's a one-third probability that 600 people will be saved and a two-thirds probability that no one will be saved. Which of the two programs would you favor? I'm just thinking about it. I'll choose option A because it seems guaranteed in comparison to option B, and uh, you know how successful it will be. I think... hmm. I'd have to go with program A because there's just a 100% probability that you can save 200 people. So it's a much better chance of actually saving some people rather than no one at all. Imagine that the U.S. is preparing for an outbreak of an unusual disease, which is expected to kill 600 people. You're an epidemiologist, and you've been asked to choose between two different programs to combat the disease. The estimates about success are exact. If you choose program A, 400 people will die. If you choose program B, there is a one-third probability that nobody will die, and a two-thirds probability that 600 people will die. Which of the two programs do you favor? That's a really hard choice. I, I think I would have to go with option B, because the chance of saving everyone is worth taking. I'm an option B guy. A is a guarantee of death. Option B is a maybe guarantee of more death, but not necessarily. So it's the optimistic choice. 
Did you see what happened there? If you take those two scenarios and really look at them, they're mathematically identical. 200 lives saved is the same as 400 lives lost when there are 600 lives at stake. And yet in the first scenario, people tended to choose the first option. 200 lives saved. And in the second scenario, they tended more often to choose the riskier second option of a one-third chance that no one would die and a two-thirds chance that everyone would die. They're the same scenarios, just framed differently. This is actually an incredibly famous problem, which Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman presented to volunteers in the 1970s to establish how dramatically our taste for risk changes when we think about the very same decision with a focus on losses instead of gains. Kahneman and Tversky used this and other experiments to demonstrate that people systematically choose riskier bets when making decisions that involve losses rather than gains. This tendency is incorporated into a seminal model they developed called prospect theory. Prospect theory differs from standard economic theory in a number of ways, but the distinction we're focusing on in today's show is that people are risk-seeking in the domain of losses, but risk-averse in the domain of gains. That means, strangely, that there are situations in which someone will reject a gamble in favor of a sure thing, when focusing on what they stand to gain. But when they focus on what they stand to lose, that same person will change their mind and pick the gamble. It's a peculiar pattern, and it's been called the reflection effect. I had the honor recently to speak with Danny Kahneman about his research on prospect theory, and more specifically, the reflection effect. I sat down with him at his apartment in New York City. Um, can you explain what risk-seeking in the domain of losses means and why this is a bias? Well, risk-seeking in the domain of, of losses means that people prefer a gamble when, when they're choosing between a gamble and a sure thing. So if you have to choose between losing $900 for sure or, or losing $1,000 with probability 0.9, uh, people will prefer the bet. And that's really very common. It's a strong result. And I'm not at all sure that it's a bias. I mean, any decision that is based on gains and losses can be viewed as a bias because, in principle, you would make decisions based on final states and how wealthy a person would be when the gamble is resolved. So anything that's not that is considered biased, and that includes risk-seeking and the losses, but otherwise, you know, it's completely reasonable. People are not shocked when they think about what they're doing. This is not something that people really consider wrong. That's interesting. And, and I don't think, I think it would be sort of narrow-minded for anybody else to consider it wrong. So what gave you and Amos the idea to look at this? Well, we were looking at preferences for gambles, and initially we uh, were looking at only at positive gambles, which had been traditionally the case. People had looked only at positive gambles. And we had a pretty good idea of how positive gambles work and the preferences. And and one day, Amos had the idea of, uh, oh, let's 
let's see what happens with losses. And right away, it became apparent that everything that we knew about positive gambles was the mirror image of that was true about negative gambles. So in with positive gambles, if you're given a choice between $900 for sure or Ninety percent to chance to to get a thousand. Most people don't hesitate for a second. It's perfectly clear that you want the nine hundred for sure. So that's risk aversion in the domain of gains, and the preference that we talked about earlier, the preference for gamble. If you reverse all the signs, we call that the reflection effect, and we we really went through the reflection effect in in one afternoon because it was. We were always our own subjects, that is, and we had a pretty good idea that if the two of us agreed on anything, then very likely the rest of humankind would too. So, and and we confirmed that. It turns out, by the way, that people had known about it. We were not the first ones to discover it, uh, but people hadn't made anything out of it. We were, I think, the first ones to realize that this was really important. That's really interesting. It's it's also interesting to me that you said that when you tell people about it, it feels intuitive. It doesn't feel like a bias, this reflection effect. Why do you think it is that it feels intuitive to people to flip their preferences when they're making choices over gambles in the domain of losses versus gains? Well, uh, it's natural for people to think in terms of gains and losses. Now, I once constructed a problem where it shows that if you have those preferences, you can construct a gamble where people will really violate the essential uh, normative principle of dominance. Just to explain what Danny means by the normative principle of dominance, he's basically referring to an economic principle saying people should be fully internally consistent in their choices. You shouldn't be able to trick people into changing their mind by rephrasing a question or reframing a gamble. You can make up two problems such that in one of them is in the gains and the other is in the losses. And if people have the standard preferences on both, then they end up violating dominance. They end up with a gamble that is sure not to be the best. So in that sense... It's not normative, but the psychology of it is really very obvious. And the psychology of it is, there are two aspects that uh, contribute to this, I think. One, the psychological value of $900 is more than 90% of the psychological value of $1,000. Now, that's true for gains, but it's also true for losses. That is, that when you think of losing money, uh, and... So relative to that, the extra 100 that you may lose doesn't look like much, but the the chance of not losing it at all becomes very attractive. And, you know, who who should say that people would not, should not have that kind of preference? Except it does get them into trouble right. uh, under <laughs> some conditions, but... Fair enough. But you're okay with human nature. I'm, uh, I'm, you know. (laughs) At peace with it. It is generally true. There is a general principle here, which is whether you allow people to have preferences on isolated problems. I mean, in principle, a fully rational person would not have preferences for isolated problems. They would have a broad view with a consistent policy about everything. And 
And that broad view would end up being standard utility theory. It would end up being the theory that decision theorists and economists assume that governs people's behavior, except it doesn't. So if you drop that requirement, then you allow people basically to look at problems one at a time, and then they have preferences one at a time, and it can get them into trouble. But each preference on its own feels reasonable to people. That's really interesting. So you mentioned you don't think it's a bias necessarily, and people are entitled to have their own, you know, preferences, and everybody well, feels okay with the reflection effect. Well, but one of the things that's interesting to me, right, is when people use it as a tool of influence to try to make the argument for their preferred policy, yeah. say, right? So someone's trying to convince you to take up insurance or not to take up insurance. And as a result, they frame it one way or another. And I always want to advise my students, how do you make your best decision, the decision you'll feel best about in the long run in the face of framing tricks someone might play on you? What kind of advice do you give? I know what I say, but I'm very curious. Well, I mean, you know, the standard advice would be that when you get a problem that's framed in a particular way, if it's important, you should ask yourself, could it be framed in other ways and would that make a difference to my choices? And and if you find that it could be framed another way and that it would make a difference to your choices, then you have a problem. Exactly. Now, so and, how do you resolve uh, that one? And, and the problem does not always have a solution. So yeah. that's exactly you know what, what I was... Uh, telling you about, that you may have strong intuitions about gains and strong intuitions about losses and no intuitions about final states mm -hmm. that would resolve your, your, your problem. And when you encounter that, then clearly you have sort of a philosophical or normative problem to solve as to what your values truly are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really helpful. The last thing I wanted to ask you is why you think it happens. I think that framing generally happens because uh, people accept what they hear as the standard formulations. Normally, we don't go about life right. generating alternatives. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. You know, he said it this way, but he could have said it that way. That's not what we do. We understand what was said. And we respond to the surface the message, yep. not to the deep message uh, that uh, that would be frame-free. But, so, but why do you think we also um, exhibit the reflection effect? So why do you think that happens? Well, I mean, the, the reflection effect is basically because of the psychophysics of quantity or the psychophysics of numbers. As a quick aside... When Danny says psychophysics, he's referring to the way we psychologically react to a concrete, objective thing like a number. So hearing 100 makes you think, that's big. And hearing 1 million makes you think, that's huge. That qualitative emotional reaction you're having doesn't always precisely map onto the quantity, though. And the squishiness of your reaction to a concrete construct like a number, can lead you to behave in funny ways. So if I ask you, you know, which is the bigger difference between zero and 100 or between 100 and, and 1,000, then you may know that, that they're equal, but psychologically they're not. And it's very obvious that zero to 100 is a bigger difference than 900 to 1,000. So numbers 
have psychophysics in terms of the strength of your reaction to numbers, which is clearly not proportional and therefore is not mathematically accurate. But there is a serious question about whether, you know, what are those gambles and what are those problems? And my impression has has been for a long time that these questions have to do with the psychophysics of numbers. They actually may not have all that much to do with values, but they are about the numbers themselves. This was great. Thank you, Danny. Okay. This was really, really fun for me. So, um, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. No problem. Daniel Kahneman is the Eugene Higgins Emeritus Professor of Psychology and Public Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. He won the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences and in 2011 wrote the best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I have a link in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast. The reflection effect, or the human tendency to be risk-seeking in the domain of losses, but risk-averse in the domain of gains, has been studied in many different contexts since the pattern was first identified in the late 1970s. To learn a bit more about the research that solidified this big discovery, I spoke with Caltech professor Colin Kammerer. Colin has been particularly interested in the way this bias affects high-stakes decisions, like the one we saw in the deal-or-no-deal stage. Hi, Colin. Thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. What's your favorite study that looks at risk-seeking in the domain of losses and risk aversion in the domain of gains? Okay. Um, the cleanest studies to me that show risk-seeking in the domain of losses have to do with break-even effects, where people will take you know, more and more risky gambles in order to kind of get back to zero, because there's a feeling of, like, you know, I, I don't want to leave the racetrack having lost money, or I don't want to leave the casino. And so, in fact, there are two studies about 40 years apart. In the early 50s, there was a study about horse race betting. And uh, the basic facts about horse race betting in America are uh, it's paramutual, which means everybody bets on a horse. The track takes out 15 or 20 percent to pay the bills and then returns the loser's money to the winners. So if you're an average better, which on average you are, you're going to lose about 15 or 20 percent. The old style was there were maybe nine races a day at Santa Anita or Philadelphia Park. And um, over the course of the day, most people have lost money. And if they're really eager to break even, what you'd expect to see would be there'd be a big shift to betting on long shots. So long shots are horses who you could bet $2 and you have a chance of winning uh, 50 to 1 odds. You could win $100 and you lost 100 that day, you would break even at the end. So you can actually see a shift in betting toward the end of the day because people want to like leave the racetrack that day and be able to go home and say, I didn't lose a penny, I got back to zero. Even though the, some of these people are going to go back to the racetrack the next day. So there's an element of sort of mental accounting of when it is you kind of close the mental account and say, I'm done, I broke even. Now, fast forward 50 years later, and um, Jamie Lien did a beautiful study with, I think, the riverboat gamblers in the Midwest. And she has data from loyalty cards. So she knows if you go gamble in a casino, when you swiped in, how much you bet, when you swiped out, and how much you won or lost. And if you plot a, a little graph of the amounts that people leave having won or lost, there's a huge spike at zero. There's a sad little distribution of like, I won 50 or $100 or $200. 
and then there's a big gap where almost nobody leaves having lost $5 or having lost $10 or having lost $20 because what they're doing toward the end is gambling more and more aggressively to try to get to zero. And as you go to the left part of the graph, we call the left tail, there's a, another sad, a sad little high spike at people losing more than a couple of hundred dollars. Because again, when you're doing all that hectic end of the racetrack day or end of the casino day to try to get back to zero, you're taking more and more risks or maybe bigger risks. And the, you know, there's a spike of people who do get back to zero, but then there's a spike of a, a bunch of losers who lost you know, everything on their wallet or whatever they could charge on their credit card. Any advice on how to avoid risk seeking in the domain of losses? Yes, actually, I think, so this is, to, to my knowledge, not been carefully studied other than in my own imagination. But I have a hunch that part of mental accounting, whether we're obsessed with getting back to zero at the end of the casino day or at the end of a racetrack day, a lot of the mental accounting probably has to do with kind of perception, space and time and and a feeling of change and closure. So if I was doing an experiment or giving advice, I would say, for example, if you go to the casino and you're behind $80 and you, ha- you feel this itch to like gamble more and more to get back to zero, just take press pause, right? So you, c- you could even in principle program something into say a device or you have a friend of yours who says, look, you're down $100, let's go have a drink. A drink may help or may hurt, I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to do some more research <laughs> on that. Um, and, and I have a feeling a pause in time or even in space Right, like if you're at the racetrack and you're standing in one part watching the races and then you go to another part of the track and you get something to eat, that may actually cl- kind of close the mental account and that may reduce the break-even effect, the desire to break even. Are you suggesting a fresh start effect? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Some, some scientists have called this a fresh start effect. Exactly, it's, it's essentially a homemade uh, reset or fresh start. Colin, thank you so much for joining. This was really interesting. It was my pleasure. If you didn't get our little joke about the fresh start effect, check out our Clean Slate episode of Choiceology from January of 2019 on how differently we behave when we feel like we have a fresh start or a clean slate. I also want to take a minute to explicitly state that we're not condoning gambling. But this technique Colin suggested is an interesting way to limit your appetite to take bigger risks than you usually would. Taking risks is okay if you understand the risks you're taking and have thoroughly thought through their consequences. But accumulating losses can make us more risk-tolerant than we would usually be in a calm, cool, and collected state, which is where the problem lies. Colin Kammerer is the Robert Kirby Professor of Behavioral Finance and Economics at the California Institute of Technology, where he teaches cognitive psychology and economics. I've posted a link in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast to his paper, Prospect Theory in the Wild, Evidence from the Field. During bouts of stock market volatility, regular investors often wonder whether they should take a more active role in managing their portfolios. And while there's no right answer for everyone, Each trade decision is an opportunity to fall prey to a bias and court more risk than you're actually comfortable with. Check out the Should You Be More Active With Your Portfolio episode of our sister podcast, Financial Decoder. It might help you guard against the psychological traps that are present on either path. You can find it at schwab.com slash financial decoder or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We touched on several important aspects of prospect theory on this and past episodes of Choiceology. We've covered research showing that losses loom larger than gains. And in this episode, we focused on the reflection effect, or people's tendency to be risk-seeking in the domain of losses, but risk-averse in the domain of gains. Both of these tendencies can lead us to flip-flop when making similar choices under trivially different circumstances. So how should you set yourself up to make the choices that really suit your risk tolerance? As Danny Kahneman mentioned, the way any choice is framed can have a meaningful impact on what you decide, for better or for worse. Sometimes you feel like you're facing a loss, like Luis Green did, but haven't actually lost anything. Luis didn't really lose a million dollars, even if he felt like he did. Unfortunately, that perceived loss influenced his choice to gamble. Instead of thinking about a sure gain of $333,000, he felt like he was locking in a sure loss of $667,000. And that made all the difference in the world. In this case, his focus on loss was not a great strategy. If Luis had been able to frame his stint on deal or no deal as a gain no matter what, he might have had an easier time quitting and walking away with a sizable amount of money. A glass that's half empty is also a glass that's half full. A hamburger that's 75% fat-free is also 25% fat. Antivirus software that has a 90% success rate also has a 10% failure rate. Interrogating your choices to see if there's a way to reframe them is a great exercise, particularly for important decisions, like what medical treatment to pursue, what insurance to buy for your home, and what stocks to sell in your portfolio when you need liquidity. Colin Kammerer's suggestion to press the proverbial pause button on your decision to give your brain a fresh start may help you avoid risk-seeking when that's not really the strategy that's right for you, but just the one that feels right because you're fixated on what you stand to lose. Finally, just knowing that you may be tempted by riskier options when you're in a loss position might give you the insight to question whether a gamble is really better than a sure thing. You've been listening to Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so other fans can find the show too. And you can subscribe for free in your favorite podcasting apps. That way you won't miss an episode. Next time, we'll look at a bias that clouds the way we view the success of entrepreneurs, musical acts, stocks, parenting techniques, and much, much more. I'm Katie Milkman. Talk to you next time. For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash podcast.